Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Newsmakers. Delano Magazine's editor-in-chief, Natalie Gerritstein, spoke to former U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg, David McCain, about his book, Watching Darkness Fall, FDR, His Ambassadors and the Rise of Adolf Hitler, which recounts the start of World War II from the perspective of four American diplomats in Europe. So without further ado, here's their conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Natalie Gerritstein. I'm editor-in-chief of Delano Magazine here in Luxembourg. I am very delighted today to be joined with David McCain, who is our former U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg, who served here during the Barack Obama administration. Uh, he's the former de- director of planning, uh, policy planning excuse me, for the U.S. Department of State, previously worked as CEO of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in Boston, was staff director for the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, and, of course, chief of staff to Senator John Kerry. Welcome today, Ambassador McCain. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thanks, Natalie. It's, it's uh, very nice to talk with you again and to, to have a connection to Luxembourg, even if it's we're still uh, many miles from each other. Definitely. So it's good to see you again. I'm obviously, we're reaching out to you today, obviously, to talk about your new book, which was published end of last year, uh, Watching Darkness Fall, FDR, His Ambassadors, and the Rise of Adolf Hitler. Um, the last time, obviously, we saw you, of course, you were here in Luxembourg. But how have things been back since you've been in the U.S.? Uh, tell us a bit what you're up to. Well, it's been, uh, you know, it's obviously been a, an eventful four or five years. Um, when I came back, I joined uh, the U.S. German Marshall Fund, which is a think tank in Washington, and started writing. And uh, almost immediately, I had a, uh, I got two book contracts, one to write a, a book on um, the current situation in Europe at the time, um, as well as uh, the, uh, the NATO alliance. And then this sort of second uh, book, which uh, we'll talk about today, on uh, FDR, really a history book for the what they call for the trade press. And, uh, you know, it turned out that uh, with COVID in 2019, that it was actually uh, a perfect uh, project to have because we really were not uh, getting out and um, seeing people or able to go to the office. And so uh, I wound up spending a lot of time at home uh, writing both of these books. And it, uh, you know, it, it was a, a difficult time for everybody. But I have to say, um, I really enjoyed the, the process of the writing. You can tell, I think, when you read it as well. Um, for me personally, I found it absolutely uh, very engaging. You bring up a lot of anecdotes. You also make a lot of references to the press, which I think as a, a journalist, we always appreciate and sort of how the press was covering this time in history. But let's just sort of start off by setting the stage a bit for, for listeners and watchers today. Your book is providing insight on the rise of the Hitler regime through the eyes of four ambassadors in particular. So the envoys to London, Berlin, Paris, Moscow, and Rome. Why did you decide to tackle the subject this way? You know, actually, um, Luxembourg played something of a role in that for me, because obviously having served as an ambassador to, to Luxembourg, um, I was interested in my predecessors who had served in Luxembourg, but also who had served in other capitals in Europe. And when I arrived in Luxembourg, you know, I honestly, and I don't think most Americans realize that the Ham Cemetery is the second largest U.S. military cemetery uh, in Europe. And it's an extraordinarily uh, moving and powerful experience to to walk among the, the headstones there. 
And, you know, I, I, I really, I vividly remember, and particularly when Secretary Kerry visited, um, when we, when we were walking there and, and it was, uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, how did, how did we just, how did we come to this war? And obviously I, you know, I knew the, the history of Pearl Harbor and, and of Hitler, but, um, it's an extraordinary thing to contemplate to actually send, uh, young men and women into battle. And, um, when I came back to the United States, I, I began to sort of, uh, I'd written a little bit about Roosevelt before, and I'd wondered who would been his, you know, foreign policy advisors during the period leading up to the war, because obviously war is the failure of diplomacy. And so who were the diplomats? Who were the key people he was listening to? And what I found was that these ambassadors were really um, in a, an extraordinary way, his eyes and ears on the ground at the time, because don't forget, this is in a period before the internet, uh, before CNN, before um, really, you know, radio was really the main sort of means of, of getting your news at the time. And Roosevelt communicated often by letter and by cable traffic. Or of course, I mean, obviously with a, a delay, that's one thing I found quite interesting reading this is you talk about the press, sort of where their minds were. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting, I think, compared to what we see in modern times now where, you know, any citizen just has a, a an iPhone and can record um, what's happening on the ground. And then- That's absolutely right. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in Ukraine in real time often. And as you as you point out, you know, with Roosevelt, he would write a letter two weeks later, um, the ambassador would get it and the ambassador would then respond and Roosevelt would get that letter two weeks later. So there was sometimes a month lag between their correspondence and there's an awful lot that can happen in one month. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get to the ambassadors in a moment. And I think, as you mentioned, I mean, it's interesting, you yourself, of course, were an ambassador here in Luxembourg and taking this approach, I found really uh, interesting to read. Um, but let's focus a little bit more on now on the U.S. sort of side. Of course, this was when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was quite heavily, uh, heavily focused, excuse me, on um, sort of restoring the domestic economy back home, a very critical time for the United States. You've already said that the ambassadors were, of course, the eyes and ears in Europe for FDR. Was he really just focused on on the domestic economy so much? I mean, you call him really an internationalist at heart. Tell us more about that. So Franklin Roosevelt is, you know, in my view, he's one of our greatest presidents. He's also um, a very enigmatic character in a lot of ways. He's an extraordinarily interesting man, um, very, very talented politician. And obviously he was, uh, you know, he was uh, stricken with polio at age um, 23, I think. So somewhat, you know, later in his life. And, uh, you know, what was interesting about Roosevelt is that he had actually traveled to Europe as a young man a lot. He knew, um, he actually spoke a little German, he spoke French. Um, and, uh, his parents had taken him on, on trips to Europe, uh, during the summers. And then when he served in the Woodrow Wilson administration, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy. Again, he, uh, he toured the battlefields of France during World War I. Um, he was very aware of, of sort of European sensibilities and what was happening in Europe at the time. Um, but when he, was, uh, when he ran for president in 1932, um, he was Governor Roosevelt. And he, uh, he, when he ran for president, you know, the, the, it was during that really the the height of the Great Depression in the United States. And during that period, um, you know, we talk about unemployment <clears throat> when it reaches 6% as being a crisis. And, it, and, it, and, and obviously it is for those individuals who are out of work. But at that time, it was 25% unemployment. 
the GDP had uh, dropped to uh, a level that was uh, um, three decades, you know, that we hadn't seen for three or four decades. Many, many people were homeless, were out of uh, out of work, did not have did not have a place to live. There were people who were hungry uh, and who uh, um, didn't have enough to eat. So it was a very dire time in the United States. And by the way, it was a you know the it was not just a, a, a an economic depression in the United States. It was a global depression. Um, so a lot of people around the world were feeling this. But Roosevelt felt that he had been elected. He campaigned to change the economy, and um, he felt that that was his top priority. Of course, at this time, I mean, there was no U.S. ambassador to Luxembourg, of course, but by 1933, what's actually now the U.S. embassy in residence had fallen into the hands of the German Reich at the time, hosted a number of Nazi officers, actually, uh, after their May 1940 invasion, uh, most infamously SS chief Heinrich Himmler. you talk a little bit about your time in Luxembourg sort of influencing maybe some way the way you wrote the story, but um, I guess just can you tell us about sort of the history and your respect for it? I mean, I I see you just adore history and um, you can talk about sort of what it was like then in the residence when you were here and also sort of maybe the evolution you see between ambassadors and presidents back home from the time that you're writing about until, of course, the time that you served yourself. Sure, sure, sure. Well, both my wife Kathleen and I loved um, being in Luxembourg during that during our period there, um, and being an ambassador, the opportunity to represent your country is a is just an extraordinary experience. And we loved being in Luxembourg because it is at the heart of Europe, and um, you know it was an original member of the EU, an original member of NATO, and so that it's uh, it's enormously um, engaged in. Uh, not only in Europe's past during World War II, but in Europe's future, mm-hmm. and so um, it was it was a it was a marvelous experience. Um, but again, I you know when I arrived in Luxembourg, I don't think I had recognized um, necessarily the impact um, of uh, of World War II on Luxembourg, and obviously having been uh, overrun twice by the Nazis, it was um, it was central to the uh, to the World War II era. Um, so, um, yeah, it had a, it had a huge impact on my decision to write this book in terms of, you know, ambassadors from that era and, and today it's, there's a, there are some similarities and there is also some huge differences. And we, we've actually, you know, already alluded to the, some of those differences, which are that, uh, just the means of communication, but it was not only the means of communication, the fact that, you know, Roosevelt was communicating directly with um, his ambassadors was um, that's somewhat unheard of today. I mean, and certainly in certain countries, um, the, the president will be um, talking directly to an ambassador, but um, it's, we have ambassadors all over the world. There are probably only a few that will be in conversation with, um, you know, with president Biden today. Um, Secretary Blinken will obviously be more engaged with a, many, with a great many more ambassadors, but in general, it's really the assistant secretaries of states who uh, second, uh, who deal with their um, in their region with the ambassadors. So that's a, it's just a very different sort of structural um, um, construct at the uh, in, in the present day. Mm-hmm. It, it, you do notice that, of course, when you're reading this as well, that it, this sort of constant communication back and forth with FTR was was quite interesting to read about. Um, let's talk about some of these these envoys that you write about. Let's start with William Dodd, um, quite a fascinating character, the envoy, obviously, to Berlin. 
His daughter also quite a fascinating character. Um, do you think he, he was well positioned for this role? Um, that it's maybe easier to talk about it in hindsight, or maybe not. He had a very special character. If you can just tell us a little bit about. Sure. Him. So you know, Dodd was a um, a very interesting guy. He was from a small town in North Carolina. Very bright guy, um, and he became the chairman of the history department at the University of Chicago. He had written a biography of Woodrow Wilson, um, and he was working on a on a sort of a compendium of uh, Southern history um, at the University of Chicago. And he, uh, as a great admirer of, uh, of Woodrow Wilson, he also um, believed that um, Franklin Roosevelt could sort of reclaim that, that mantle um, when he ran for president in 1932, and he supported Roosevelt and had the opportunity to meet him during the campaign. But Dodd was not, um, you know, he was not a Washington player. He was not somebody who um, was well known and wash in diplomatic circles at all. And um, Roosevelt had a very difficult time finding an ambassador to uh, finding a candidate to, to represent the United States in Berlin during that period. And he asked three or four very prominent Americans to, 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 uh, to take the job of ambassador and they turned him down. So he eventually turned to to William Dodd as sort of a uh, a default, really. And um, you know, I think Dodd was enormously surprised when one day he picked up the phone and and on the other end of the line uh, he said, "This is uh, President Franklin Roosevelt. Um, how are you? I'd like you to be our next ambassador to Germany." And Dodd was really uh, flabbergasted by this. Um, in the end, he was extraordinarily prescient about um, what was happening in Germany. It took him a few months to, to really understand what the Nazis were doing, but um, he eventually became very disillusioned with, with Hitler and with his entourage, and he warned um, President Roosevelt um, early on in the early 30s, 1934, 1935, that Hitler was bent on um, the remilitarization of Germany and eventually on the domination of, of, of all of Europe. And he called Hitler a mad, you know, a, a murderer and a madman. Mm-hmm. So um, Dodd was, uh, I think, a very prescient in that way. In other ways, he was he was not equipped to be an ambassador. He didn't understand how to, again, how to sort of work the levers of, of power in Washington. And um, as a result, he was often um, sidelined by a lot of people in the in the State Department. I mean, and obviously he had met with Hitler on more than one occasion, and that his perspective really evolved over over the time, as you mentioned. Absolutely. Now he thought, you know, again, a couple of times, uh, particularly in his second meeting with Hitler, um, Hitler literally sort of exploded in um, in the course of their conversation and went on this rant about Jews. And um, you know, I think Dodd was was really horrified by him. But it was it was his entire entourage that that uh, Dodd came to literally to despise. Um, he he believed that these were um, just evil people. Let's uh, switch gears then and then talk a little bit about William Bullitt, who was the first U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union and U.S. ambassador to France during World War II, who in many ways was the polar opposite of Dodd, um, thinking maybe Hitler's influence would be a little bit more fleeting. Absolutely. Now you know. Also, he's just a fascinating character. He's a um, graduate of Yale. He's a brilliant um, young guy who also served, he served in the um, um, administration of Woodrow Wilson. He actually negotiated with Lenin on the few, uh, um, opposite Lenin in 1919 at the end. Dodd was a young man at that time. Um, 
after World War One, he wrote a uh, he wrote a novel that um, outsold um, The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is a sort of an iconic American um, piece of fiction. And um, you know, uh, he was just a very very talented guy. He supported Roosevelt in 1932, and Roosevelt. Um, um, got to know him quite well, uh, really after the campaign, and they talked um, about the future of Europe and particularly about um, the Soviet Union. And Roosevelt decided to make him his first ambassador to um, to Moscow. Um, this was a for for uh, for Bullitt, um, a, you know, a very great honor, and he um, he really thought that he was going to be able to, uh, I think, to to have an influence on on. Uh, on Russia, but after meeting with Stalin and after a few months in Moscow, um, he became extremely disillusioned with uh, with the future of the of, of the Soviet Union. He believed that Stalin was a you know a, a, an autocrat who um, was repressing his people and uh, was not to mention spying on uh, on everyone in the American embassy. And after really only a you know a year and a half, uh, two years, he decided that he wanted to leave that post. And was desperate to come back and help um, Roosevelt with the, his reelection campaign in 1936. After that, he did come back. Um, he wrote some speeches for Roosevelt, and afterwards, um, the president made him the ambassador to uh, to Paris, to France. And there, um, you know, he really thrived. Bullet was was in his element. He spoke French fluently. Um, he was a very he hosted wonderful parties. Um, but he also uh, managed to ingratiate himself with the, the leadership of the French government. So he, uh, you know, as you suggest, he uh, initially thought that uh, Hitler might be a, just a, a, a fleeting um, phenomenon. By and it took him, it took uh, William Bullitt a few years, but eventually he was really the first one to advise President Roosevelt that the United States really needed to rearm, that there was a very great possibility that the United States could be drawn into a European war. Let me, we're, we're jumping gears a little bit here and talking about Joseph Kennedy next. Um, yes. Ambassador to Great Britain starting in 1938, who supported Chamber, Chamberlain's policy, of, excuse me, of appeasement, and who had actually been accused of making some anti-Semitic statements as well. Um, tell us more about him and what it was like to write about this character. Yeah. So Joe Kennedy, um, you know, Joe Kennedy was a, at the time, one of the richest men in the wealthiest men in the United States, he made a huge amount of money in the uh, in the film industry. He had also been a supporter of President Roosevelt in 1932. Um, they had known each other during World War One. Uh, Roosevelt didn't particularly like Joe Kennedy, but he understood how uh, important he could be to his campaign. He was also Kennedy was a Catholic and had um, a lot of credibility um, with uh, with Catholics across the country. When Roosevelt was elected, he made Kennedy the, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was really a new institution in Washington regulating the financial markets. Kennedy did a terrific job at that. He only stayed for a year and a half, but he, but he really um, did, he did a marvelous job in terms of making sure that there was accountability in the markets and oversight of the markets. Kennedy really wanted to be Secretary of the Treasury, but Roosevelt had no intention of appointing him to such a prestigious position. And in fact, um, in uh, 1936, I believe, offered him to be the uh, head of the Merchant Marine, 
which was in some ways a step down from the Securities and Exchange Commission. But nevertheless, um, Kennedy, who was a good soldier, accepted the job. And uh, at, at a certain point in 1937, he, approached, he actually approached Roosevelt's son and he said, you know, I, would, I understand that the ambassador uh, to the court of St. James is leaving and I would like to be appointed. And Roosevelt thought that was a crazy idea at first. But then he's decided, well, you know, I'm going to be running for re-election in 1940. Not a bad thing to have Joe Kennedy out of the country. And the other, the other sort of uh, assessment that he made was that um, he felt that Chamberlain was, and, and that the entire sort of British um, firmament, the British uh, elite were somewhat um, soft on, on many things, but, but particularly on what was happening in Europe. They were... They were um, Trying to isolate themselves, and he felt that perhaps Kennedy would, um, you know, would would sort of uh, create some some energy there, that might have a really positive effect. <clears throat> Kennedy, however, had his own views of what was happening in Europe, and as you, you know, as you said in your in your remarks earlier, he became an really an appeaser of less of an appeaser than a defeatist. I think um, he really believed that Hitler was going to um, conquer Europe. And that we needed to to reach some sort of economic accommodation with him, and it was you know completely uh, contrary to how Roosevelt viewed the the world, and so that in the end um, they were at loggerheads for most of the time that Kennedy was in in uh, in in Britain, and eventually Kennedy, uh, feeling that he didn't have Roosevelt's support, left the job. Getting to sort of your own personal views, I mean, is there one of these four ambassadors who you feel most drawn to and why? So, you know, I, I, admire, um, I admire Dodd for his uh, ability to uh, speak the truth. And I, thought, I think he was, uh, again, a very, um, very earnest and um, someone of great integrity. He, again, because he was sort of so naive about politics and, and didn't really understand how government worked, he was not a very effective um, ambassador. You know, Bill Bullitt, on the other hand, um, had some serious flaws, but uh, he was a, an enormously capable individual. Mm-hmm. And he did know how to, to move the levers of power. And so that, uh, you know, there were, there were parts of both of these men who I think... Um, made them uh, admirable characters and, and people, who, uh, people who I admire to some extent. Let's maybe switch a bit gears here. I mean, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you're based in the U.S. right now to ask some questions to you about um, you know, the current situation and also sort of your thoughts on, on how Biden is doing at the moment, both uh, with the focus on, on the domestic uh, infrastructure and so on, but also how he's reacted to the situation in Ukraine, just your own thoughts on this. Sure. So, you know, look, it's, uh, his approval rating is, is actually, um, if you believe the polls, it was quite low at the end of last year and it's gone up some. He actually had um, a very successful first year, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, he was, he was uh, given a very, very, very difficult hand to play by the Trump administration. Um, there was really no set of policies in place to deal with COVID when uh, President Biden took over. And there had already been a, you know, a, a deal negotiated um, with the Taliban in Afghanistan when Biden took over. 
and there was no the, and the lack of bipartisanship was you know uh, was very very apparent. Uh, the politics were toxic. But during that first year, you know, he got an he got an infrastructure. First, he got a COVID bill passed, a bipartisan bill, um, which has helped greatly to um, in terms of getting the, the vaccinations out, getting the tests out. Um, he also got an infrastructure bill passed, which is something that um, has been talked about for twenty years. You know, America's bridges and roads are not in the best shape. Um, we really haven't done anything since the Eisenhower administration. And this is a multi-billion dollar bill that's going to put a lot of people to work and it's going to make uh, the United States once again, you know, a world-class uh, country in terms of its infrastructure and ability to move um, goods and people um, from coast to coast. So it's hugely, hugely important. And he got that passed. So again, I think he, I think he's done well um, in terms of Ukraine. Um, look, uh, much to his credit, the first thing, one of the first things that Biden did and that Secretary Blinken did when they came to um, came into office was to begin to repair relationships around the world and particularly our relationships in Europe. And I think they um, have done an excellent job in, um, you know, in, in really signaling that the United States wants to hear the concerns of Europe and also believes very deeply in the transatlantic alliance. And that's been evident in in the in the, how they've handled the Ukrainian situation. Um, and I also think the other thing that was has been very very important is is the uh, way they've been so transparent uh, and about what it is that Putin was doing, and and uh, how the United States would be involved in in any situation that we would um, welcome diplomacy. Um, but that we would be ready to impose very, very harsh sanctions in the event of war. And unfortunately, of course, um, we are now in a, in, a, uh, in a serious situation there where the Russians are um, targeting civilians and there is a, it's, it's a desperate situation for the Ukrainian people. Thanks for your insight there. Um, well, obviously, we have the, the midterm elections that are coming up this year as well. Um, what do you see as most at stake there? So, look, you know, there's a lot of... A lot of people do make a lot of predictions about the midterms, um, and historically, the party out of power usually gains seats. That may be the case, but we, you know, we are in uh, March, the end of March, and the midterms aren't in November, and there's a lot that can happen between now and, and November. So, making predictions is uh, in some is in some ways a fool's errand. But there's a lot at stake here. Uh, there really is a lot at stake. Um, you know, I think. Some of the key issues, are obviously, the, the continuation of what I think has been a you know rather successful um, foreign policy, but there's also the issue of climate, which is um, something that we can't just set aside. You know, domestically, um, voting rights are a huge issue in this country, and um, the Biden administration has uh, stepped up to the plate on that issue. And obviously, economically, um, you know, we're facing a, a period now of, of high inflation. Um, that is not necessarily something that any administration can do a lot about. Um, but it is something that we need to, um, you know, we need to, to work at and to, to be cognizant of and to, uh, and to hopefully um, with um, smart uh, policies from the Federal Reserve begin to um, 
reduce the inflation. Last question, I guess, for you. I, uh, are you planning another book? <laughs> what are your next plans? So, uh, you know, I would love to write another book. You always have to make sure that what you're going to write about is something that's going to sustain you and, and will also, you know, hopefully um, be in, uh, interesting to the, to the public. So I haven't quite, I've got a couple of things um, percolating, but I haven't uh, settled on anything yet. But, you know, I've written six books now. And um, um, so I, I feel I've got another, another couple in me and I'm, I, I would love to do it. It's a, it's a, uh, for somebody who's interested in history, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity. It was, it was genuinely a pleasure to read the book and um, feel that you had really you know sunk, dug your heels into this this part of history and these anecdotes I read. They're just some that have really you can't sort of stop thinking about. Um, I've flagged just <laughs> too many parts. <laughs> I'm very impressed, Natalie, that you uh, actually have. Yeah, Flag the book, flag different passages. Yeah, very, very, um, extremely readable. Um, extremely readable. And it's not always the case for historical subjects, but this was very, very readable. So thank you very much. It sustained you, but I think it sustains your readers very well as well. Well, thanks so much. Um, so this was uh, St. Martin's Press that published this, but I understand you also have copies available at the uh, World War II Museum here in Dikersh as well. Yeah, There should be, yes. Okay. And, uh, and again, it's, you know, for those who... Uh, don't mind going on to Amazon. You can get it on, uh, you can certainly order it on Amazon as well. Or local, local bookshop. Or local bookshops. Yeah. We'll have to, <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure they can order it. I'm not sure that it's in any of the local bookshops at the moment in, in Luxembourg, but I hope it is. Maybe it is. Mm -hmm. hope so. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and um, thank you again for your time today and look forward to hearing what comes next. Thanks so much, Natalie. Nice to talk with you and, and my best to everyone in Luxembourg. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on Delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on Delano.lu.